Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Today's scripture is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, would you bless the reading of your word? Thank you. Thank you, Bree. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good, good, good. <laughs> well, as Casey mentioned, we are in a new mini-series within the broader series we're doing through the book of Mark. And this one is simply titled, Here Comes the King. Here Comes the King. The, uh, the journey to Jerusalem is over as we enter chapter 11 this week. And as we go on through the rest of the book of Mark, chapters 11 through 16 record the final week of our Lord's earthly life. Uh, and Mark devotes more than one-third of his gospel to this what we call Passion Week, now, some have referred, as I mentioned the very first week of going through Mark, some have referred to his gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction because of the great detail that he goes into this final week in in his gospel. And it's going to be a busy week, as we'll see over the next few months, that culminates in his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So, spoiler alert, that's where we're headed, um, but there is a lot to be discussed and learned and to receive from the scriptures on our way there. So this Passion Week begins with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem during Passover. Now traditionally we call this, what we're reading today, the triumphal entry. Because it is this unambiguous declaration of his kingship. It's like, okay, the, the, the word's out. If you recall up to this point, Jesus has been very like, hey... Don't go out telling everybody, okay, don't speak of this. He's been really low-key, more covert, going in and out of cities, and that is about to change. Also, as we've been going through Mark, you may have noticed that some events aren't recorded in all four Gospels, but this week is. This is of such importance that it's recorded in all four Gospels, and this atonement for sin that Jesus is doing will soon become historical for all to behold. So why that's important is Old Testament-wise and all the prophecies that Jesus is coming to fulfill, like people have been learning about them, waiting for them, and there's just been, been this prophetic silence 
right? For 400 years leading up to Jesus entering the world, God in a body entering the world, the incarnation. And now that is about to become a tangible, historical thing for all who are there to witness and to be a part of. Now, Jerusalem would have been just hopping with activity with Passover week coming in. During Passover, the population could swell to three times the normal size in Jerusalem. Three times the normal size. So think like maybe you live in Eugene or the surrounding area and like the Olympic trials are coming into town or something else. And all of a sudden you're like, every hotel's full, everybody's Airbnb out, their extra rooms, everything. It's just the population is just swelling. The activity is flourishing and there's just an excitement in town because pilgrims from all over the region would have come into Jerusalem for this week. However, this Passover will be like any other they have ever experienced, as we will see. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for what you want to speak to us today. Father, would you have your will in our hearts, in our lives? Would you teach us through this text? God, give us the hearts to receive what you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, so the title of today's message is A Different Kind of King, A Different Kind of King, and this will uh, be illustrated quite easily as we go through these first 11 verses, but here comes the King miniseries, and then we got to start off with showing that this is, in fact, a different kind of king. So as we head into the scripture, let's unpack this a little bit. We see that the journey to Jerusalem, which was our previous series, this journey Jesus and his disciples were on is finally complete. And now Jesus and his followers, his 12 disciples, are heading down the Mount of Olives and into the city proper of Jerusalem, into the city behind the walls. Like They're, they're heading into the proper epicenter of religious activity for this region. And Jesus shows and confirms his knowledge of this event in the way he instructs his followers to obtain this cult. When we read through this today, I'm looking at the scripture, I'm like, okay, there's some really good stuff in there, but why are half of the verses about this darn cult, this donkey? Like, it, it takes up this chunk. But he knows exactly where they're going to find it. He knows exactly what they should say, right, to get it, to allow, so the people will allow them to take it. And not only that, but it actually echoes some prophecy from the old testament but he knows exactly what they need to say so to us reading this can can be significant because he's told of his death that is to come and his resurrection and he's he's shared with them three times this prophetic word about the passion about what he is going to jerusalem to do and each time he's shared it since chapter eight it's gotten more and more detailed right and we culminated that in the last couple weeks saying, wow he's really breaking this down for the disciples. And he's been telling of this. And now we see that he even knows the intricacies of how they will obtain this darn donkey that he's going to ride into town on. And for us, we read that. I'm like, man, like this, this just confirms that all the things he's been foretelling of, like it lends credibility to them, right? So we're heading into this and there's these ominous, 
things that he's foretelling of, of what's going to happen to him, and as followers of him, and as his followers would as well, they're like, oh, I know Jesus is saying that, but, you know, really hoping God's going to come through in the fourth quarter here and change things because we don't want to lose Jesus, right? You can imagine it. The followers are kind of thinking that. I'm like, okay, yes, you're saying that, but it's got to be different. It's got to be different because we know what kind of Messiah we expect. We know that we're expecting the establishment of the Davidic kingdom here that is going to overrule and overcome the Roman occupation. And so they, they think that, yeah, he's saying that, but it must be metaphorical. I'm sure there's something else to this. And now he's just continuing to show them, hey, every little thing I'm telling you about this is going to come true. Not only am I fulfilling prophecy of the Old Testament, but everything I tell you about how this week is going to happen is happening. It's unfolding just like that. He's establishing credibility in his words and what he is telling them through all of this. Obtaining a simple cult in every little bit of it is meaningful. Every little bit of it has purpose and why it is in there. Now, for the followers, they're not going to see this like we do because we're reading this knowing how the story ends, right? So much of these gospels, for me, I read through the response of the disciples. I'm like, how can they not see that, right? How can they not see that? Well, we are a few thousand years removed. We know the whole story. We've heard sermons. We've read the Bible stories. Like, we have more context than they have. They're in the thick of it. And we need to make sure that we don't think ourselves better than them, because how many times are we in the thick of something, and we fail to remember or recognize what God may be doing, right? Like, when we're in the thick of it, there's the fog, there's the storm. Our, our focus gets so acute that we can fail to see either what God's promises have been or what he's actually doing in a moment. So let's not try to think poorly about the disciples here. Just recognize, wow, yeah, I do that too. I do that too. So after he comes back, they're going to be like, oh, I see what you were doing with that cult thing, right? Like, I see you were just showing us that we can trust you. But in this moment, they're like, okay, cool. I'll go get the cult. Everything you've told me to do so far has worked out okay, so I'll keep doing that. But they're, they're not going to be putting all these puzzle pieces, that's a lot of peas, together at this point in the story. But he's establishing credibility. And the disciples, again, they're, they're not picking up on this. They're not picking up on this yet. Now, this entrance on a donkey or a colt, like I said, is yet another prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. If we look at Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the full of a donkey. This is another fulfillment of the scriptures, the prophecies that these people would have been steeped in, in their religious tradition and in their culture. And then we see the disciples saddle the donkey with their own garments. And then the people do the same thing to the road as he is riding in. They, they put their cloaks or garments, depending on your translation, on the road, similar to how they did in 2 Kings chapter 9 when Jehu was anointed king of Israel. A celebration that had previously been reserved for earthly kings, they were now expressing towards Jesus, which again gives us an idea of what they were expecting. Some anointed military governmental leader to come in and save the day. They're expressing their hope and their excitement or anticipation in a similar way. So the people here are caught up in the celebration and the emotion of a moment. And they also line the roads with what? We learn of, of branches, of palm fronds, 
and branches, which palm fronds are an expression or sign of peace. And when it says branches, what that likely means is like straw. They're lining the road with garments and palm fronds saying peace is coming and, and they're lining it with straw and, and all of these things. Their expression and celebration of the moment is manifesting in this way. And then what do they shout in the midst of all of this? Hosanna! Which literally means save us. So Jesus is coming in, they're shouting, save us! Save us! Hosanna! And then they exclaim what to them would be nationalistic praises of a military and political deliverer from the Roman oppression they were under. When they say things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They are calling for him to save them by establishing the Davidic kingdom. They're referring to their father David and his kingdom being established. Do you guys see the problem in this and how it is not reconciled with what Jesus has been teaching in the previous weeks? Like, it, it just doesn't correlate, right? We see that, oh man, there they go again. They, are, they have no clue what Jesus is actually coming to do. Now this was, as I mentioned earlier, a completely different kind of entrance than we've seen from Jesus. Completely uncharacteristic of his entire ministry up to this point, where he was doing more of a covert entry into the next city as he was visiting. Um, here, he draws a crowd, and he rides in on an animal instead of walking. And it's worth noting that this animal has never been ridden before, which in their cultural context makes it fitting for a king to ride in on. It's this purity, not having been used before, of this colt or donkey that he's riding in on. Up to this point, Jesus had consistently tried to elude the starstruck crowds. And we see that time and time again as we've went through the Gospel of Mark. Because their excitement threatened to turn his mission into a carnival, right? He wasn't there to just get people excited about the magic of some moment. He was there to preach of a coming kingdom, a different type of citizenship. And their excitement was often misaligned with the reality of what he was teaching, so we often also would see him hushing crowds who tried to champion his name without fully understanding what he was sent to do. And he would dampen the aspirations of those who saw only visions of glory and could not see the signs along the way that were pointing to Golgotha and the death on a cross, which he has foretold will happen. Now what occurs here is a complete reversal of that previous standard of how Jesus would enter a city, how he would interact with people, and how he would be celebrated. But even in the first 11 verses, we can see really quickly that the crowd is mistaken in their acclaim, in what they believe Jesus is there to do. They treat him in his approach as this triumphal entry, shouting nationalistic slogans about the restoration of the power and glory of the Davidic kingdom, about restoring the glory of their ancestors and the previous earthly kings. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now they're right that Jesus comes as a king, but they expect it to be this typical monarchy type of king who will establish this temporal empire like we've seen throughout the Old Testament and throughout the history of Israel. 
But their mistaken presumption that he is entering Jerusalem to purge the nation of foreign domination and to resuscitate the ancient glories of Israel leads to this premature festivity that they are throwing. They're excited, and we can read this and be like, see, they know Jesus is coming. This is so exciting. Look, they know Jesus is coming to die on the cross and be a substitutionary death for their sins. And we can, we can try to look at it like that, but they are seeing it completely different. They are so off base in what they're celebrating. It's preemptive. It's misinformed, and it misses the point of what he is there to do. You can read the children's Bible that tells you, look, they're putting palm fronds out. They know that he's the prince of peace and he's coming and he's, he's going to make everything right and give his life. And it's like you cannot go to how the story ends without acknowledging the suffering and all the stuff that happens between his entry and his death and resurrection. And we have to look at what he does along the way or we miss the weight and the depth of what he did on the cross. Amen. We have to look at these things. And then as this section of scripture finishes, we read that Jesus goes to the temple courts on a sort of recon mission, right? He's looking around, but it says, since it is late, he heads out. Such a seemingly anticlimactic ending to such a celebratory and emotional event. It's like he enters in and then, oh, he's going into the temple courts. This is about to get good. And then it says, well, since it was late, he took off. Like, it, it, it seems like something in our understanding is missing there. Would you agree? Like, ah, it, it seems like there's more to that. Like, late for what? Since he was late, what, what was he late for? Did time run out on Jesus and he couldn't do anything because his, his time had run out? Because the temple was not, like, was closed and it just, it wasn't the right time? This is a seemingly colorless ending to this dynamic entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But there's more happening here than meets the eye. This actually sets the stage for what's going to happen on the next day. It sets the stage, and its true significance can only be filled in by the Old Testament. Because Jesus doesn't just come in and tour the temple as a tourist. He's not dazzled by its glittering gold or glistening white marble and gigantic stones. He doesn't come in like we would maybe go see Washington, D.C. for the first time and be like, whoa, all this history. Look at these amazing monuments. Oh, that thing's so huge. That's amazing how they've built this. Like, that's not how he goes into it. Nor does he come out of some pious reverence. He doesn't come in and offer prayers and sacrifices like people of that day would because he had identified himself as the Lord in verse 3 who needed this cult to come take him into town. And now he enters his temple as is prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And Mark actually quoted this scripture way back in chapter 1. But it says this, Malachi 3, 1 through 2. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. So he's going to come on the scene, Malachi is telling us. But it's not just going to be all warm fuzzies. He's coming to do some refining, to be like a launderer's soap. He's going to clean house. Jesus enters the temple here to inspect it as his entry, his dynamic entry is finished. And it sets the stage for the next day's events 
that reveal he comes not to just restore this physical temple, but to pronounce God's judgment on it, to refine it like a launderer's soap. This sets up the stage for the coming day. So that's, that's, that's what's going on there. That's our, our summary, our unpack it section of the message. But there's a couple very particular things that I believe God wants to highlight for us. And this isn't just a obligatory, like, hey, we read through these 11 verses, and God really wants to teach us about this. I believe this is, a, as we read this, this is something God wants to speak to us right now in our country, right where we live, because we need it, and we're in the midst of a place where culturally, societally, this is happening all around us. It's happening. So listen, listen up. I believe that this is a timely word from the Lord. So as we look at this triumphal entry, many churches celebrate Jesus' grand entrance into Jerusalem as Palm Sunday, with children in the congregation waving palms, right? Maybe you've experienced this kind of service. And then the next Sunday, Christians would celebrate Easter and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And most of the worshipers in attendance on these days don't come to any special services commemorating the events of Jesus' passion leading up to the death and resurrection. But consequently, they miss out on what happens in between. And people, followers of Jesus, and those who are maybe just seeking answers and looking for good news can miss something. They may get the false impression that Christianity moves from one celebration to the next, or that Easter somehow erases all that happened leading up to it, and all of the the significance of what Jesus said and did and what his followers are to learn from him as he approaches the cross. Now, Mark's gospel, more than any other, brings out Jesus' enormous suffering, And the author bears witness to his terrible loneliness amidst the deafening applause as he heads in to Jerusalem. We need to recognize before we get into these two points that if we hail Jesus, we must hail him as the one who comes to die for our sins, not as the one who comes to bring us glory. We must hail him as one who gives his life for the kingdom of God, not as one who sets up the kingdom of David. Because these people, that's what they were looking at it as, right? Like, hey, I have pride in my lineage as being like a a child of David and his kingdom. And I will get glory again when that kingdom is set back in place. And I am vindicated for the suffering that the Roman oppression has brought on me and my family. And we will once again have our righteous place in this region, glorified by my citizenship of this earthly kingdom, right? But that's not what Jesus is coming to do. He's not coming to set in place some earthly kingdom or to see them glorified for their earthly citizenship. He's there for a much bigger, much more significant, much more everlasting purpose. The crowd shouts, Hosanna, save us, thinking that Jesus has come to save them from their political enemies. But what we need most is for Jesus to save us from ourselves. Amen? They think, oh, he's going to save us from these just atrocious people and how they're treating us. But he actually comes to save us from ourselves and the consequences of our self-governance and trying to do things our own way. 
And where human nature and aspirations change little over the years, this incident reveals that we still need saving from a couple things. We can't, like I've mentioned nearly every week, we can't look at these people and the situation they're in and say, oh yeah, they need saving, I'm glad that's not me. We need to look at this from a place of humility and the reality that, oh man, they need saving and so do I. God, will you direct my heart? Will you help me take a step towards you humbly, being fully dependent on you to save me, to get me right with my creator, with my heavenly father? Now, as I go into these two points, there might be some words that I say that spark some emotion in you. You guys may not know this, but we had an election last year. Kind of divided the country a little bit. There's been some tensions within tribalism and different things. Our, our country has been ridden with tensions and conflict. But don't get caught up in words or sentences. Listen to what the gospel is saying in the midst of this. One of the things that we need Jesus to save us from is we need saved from our petty nationalism that divides the world into tiny enclaves set over against one another. We need him to deliver us from this. Jesus does not come to fulfill anyone's political agenda. He didn't when he entered Jerusalem, and he doesn't today. We need him to deliver us from this. And as our judge, he may condemn it as he did in the temple in Jerusalem that we'll read about in the coming weeks. Amazingly, people still drape Jesus just as they did in this scripture in nationalistic flags. Oh, this is the kingdom of David coming. Blessed be the Lord from heaven. Save us. Hosanna. Just draping their hope for all of these things in Jesus. Or in, the, in nationalistic slogan stuff. Sorry, that was... <clears throat> They're draping all that hope that he will just bring about some nationalistic agenda and save them through earthly means. But he's got so much more that he wants to do in our situation than that. Now, I'm not saying that the disciple of Jesus should not care about things like politics and policy and justice but I am saying that the disciple of Jesus must not be defined or dependent upon any earthly, social, political, or governmental construct. We cannot be dependent on or defined by these earthly things in our world. And when we are, it's manifested by the flags that we try to drape over the back of Jesus as he marches into the things we need delivered from. Whether it's a color, red or blue, whether it's a policy or a house bill number or whatever it is, those are not the things that are to be draped on Jesus. We cannot put our own understanding or political agendas and tribalism on the back of Jesus. There are things involved in the social and political happenings of our world that Jesus cares deeply about but not to the point where he allows those to be a substitutionary identity for the children of God. He cares deeply about things. There's, there, I'm sure that there's policies and social injustices and things happening in our world that break his heart. That's why he came to die. But those are not the substitutions for our true identity as children of God. We have to place them in their proper place. The one who comes to Jerusalem comes as the king of the entire world and dies for all people. 
His people will not be confined to any one nation, and His sacrificial love will reach beyond all political parties, national borders, and races. He is much bigger than the boxes and constructs we try to put on this world. Amen? And we cannot put our hope in our affiliations here on earth. Our hope is to be in Jesus. And we see, as he enters Jerusalem, how through the history of time, all the way back into the Old Testament, people are just desperate for, looking for a human, fleshly, earthly king to put their hope in. And Jesus comes in, a different kind of king, to show that, hey, all of those things we've been telling you, like the, these are not the things you're to put your hope in. I will give you something to put your hope in. And that's what he's there to show us. The second thing that Jesus needs to save us from is our foolish expectations of glory so that we can see God's power truly affected on the cross. Again, there's something about the identity of these people, about them wanting to be vindicated and, and have some different status in their society that motivated the way in which they were celebrating Jesus' entry. Because they had false expectations. They thought it was going to look different. They thought it was going to raise their status in society to a different level, to be glorified, if you will, in their status. But God does not win by sending armies and bloody battles but by sending his son to the cross, a totally different kind of king, a king who gives his life for others. Jesus reigns with a kind of power that earthly kings cannot match. There is no earthly king that can rule and save and act as Lord in the way that Jesus does. When considering the way in which Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's an author by the name of Steve Lambert who lives on the East Coast in the District of Columbia. And he reflects on the differences in this reflection between Christianity and Islam. And he says, In no other manner are the differences between Muslims and Christians more sharply contrasted than in the difference between the characters and legacies of their prophets. Perhaps the contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and Jesus entered Jerusalem. Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control as its new religious, political, and military leader. Today, in a palace in Istanbul, Turkey, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display. Jesus, however, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, accompanied by his 12 disciples. He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fronds, a traditional sign of peace. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly, secular king who was to free them from the yoke of Rome, whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. Jesus came by invitation, not by force. You see, Christ did not come to function in a way that brought glory and temporal victory to those who associated with him. That's not why he came. He came to bring glory to his Father in heaven and bring eternal redemption to a broken world. His mission was much larger than one city 
one people group, one genealogy. His mission was eternity for all people. This kind of mission required a different kind of king than mankind had ever seen, and a different kind of king than they could even fathom. This kind of mission required King Jesus. Required King Jesus. And whereas Jesus is a new kind of king, one that is often difficult for people to understand, he is still your king. He's my king. He's, your, he's our king. Like, Jesus is not just some king of other people. We are here today because we declare that he is our king. He does not identify with any man-made tribes or political agendas. He doesn't come to bring you glory, and he is not concerned with our fleshly expectations of what a heavenly king should look like. Jesus did not come to fulfill our ideals, agendas, and expectation. He actually came to set us free from them. Now let that sink in for a minute. Jesus didn't come to fulfill your ideals, your agendas, and your expectations. He came to set you free from them. What do you mean, pastor? Set me free from my political ideologies, my expectations, my agendas, the ways that I clearly see things should be done and accomplished to get things done around here? Why would he set me free from those things? Can't Jesus just get on board with how I know things should go and then we can move forward? Right? Like, how often out of our pridefulness do we think about things that way? The pride that we can have as humans to actually believe that we can see things through a redemptive eternal lens as only God can is amazing, isn't it? That we think we have the market on the knowledge and all of the things that go into any given situation and we just, we get it. We get it. And this doesn't just have to do with the things I'm talking about today. This can overlap into so many areas of our life. The ways that we can look at a presidential campaign and think that it can interfere with or fulfill the redemptive purposes of the creator of heaven, right? Like, oh man, this stuff happening down here on earth sure is going to get in the way of God, what God's going to do. Man, I bet he didn't see that coming. We hear somebody else say it, and we're like, well, that's silly. Who actually thinks that? But as you watch the news, as you engage in conversations, as you watch all of the coverage 24 7, 365, or the extra day of 2020 we had, does it seem so silly when you're wrestling with those things? Yes, <laughs> it can change. Those things. You see, Jesus came to set us free from the captivity of our ongoing search for leaders other than God in the flesh and to deliver us from the consequences of sin in this world. He came to deliver us from those things, from the captivity of our own understanding and our own prideful thoughts of how things should go, from our own tribalism, if you will. He came to set us free from that stuff. Isaiah 61 says he comes to set the captives free, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set free prisoners from darkness. He is a completely different kind of king. Worship team, you can head back up. This king, named Jesus, comes to free us from not only a broken world, but also from our broken understanding of it. 
His redemption in our lives is not just for when we die. It's not just to get us to heaven someday. His redemption of our brokenness interacts with every bit of the way in which we view our world. All the ways that it's out of balance or where we're putting our hope into the wrong things. He says, let me come in and redeem that. Let me fix that. Let me bring light into that darkness. Let me free you from those things you're holding on to that simply are causing anxiety in your life. I want to free you from that now, not eventually, but now. That's what he offers. That's what he comes to do. But unfortunately, when this happens, for so many of us, Jesus opens that prison cell for us, right? To free us. He takes off the shackles. He unchains us. And we still hold on to the bars of the prison wall, unwilling to step out. Unwilling to just be free into a new kind of existence, a new kind of citizenship, a new kind of life. Because there is something strangely familiar about captivity that we just want to hold on to because at least we know it. And we don't know what is outside of those doors. We oftentimes have no clue what God has for us as he frees us from captivity. And so we hold on to this idea that some human king is going to save us. Some political agenda is going to right the world. That if we just get the right administration in place, racism and all of these things that have been existing for thousands of years will just go away. But it won't. There is only one thing that will make this world right, that will get rid of all the just despicable things that we see all around us, and that is us giving all of our allegiance and dependence to King Jesus, a different kind of king that won't let you down, that won't subscribe to your way of doing things most of the time, but that will do things the right way, in line with the Heavenly Father, the creator of the heavens and earth. Jesus came to give you a life free from the ideals and standards and the definitions of this world. He came to give you a life fully dependent and defined by a different kind of king, by King Jesus. Hear me in that. He came to give you a life fully dependent and defined by a new kind of king. Jesus wants you to say yes to him, being a different kind of king in your life. Will you let go of the all-too-familiar prison cell? Will you humble, humble yourself in your understanding of the world? And will you allow Jesus to be who your dependence is upon and your definition as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and where that comes from? Will you allow Jesus to be who your dependence is upon and your definition as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven comes from. Will you allow him to be that for you? He's come. He's unlocked that door. He's unshackled you. He says, I have this whole new life, this new way of thinking, this new redemptive lens and way of life, this new lifestyle I want to give you. And I know it's scary because you've been in captivity so long that it just feels weird stepping out of that cell. But he's not going to forcefully drag you out of there. He's inviting you into a new citizenship, a new way of life. And today he is asking you, each one of you, will you step into it?
He's asking us, will you step into what this year has for you? Will you step into what eternity has for you? Will you step into what a new lifestyle serving a new kind of king has for you? Will you let the past be the past and simply inform your future as a follower of Jesus? Let go of that stinking bar and follow me. Let go. Let go of the familiar anxiety that weirdly gives you comfort. Let go of the identity that is established by which primary ballot you get in the mail. Let go of hoping that some different administration or earthly kingdom is going to actually deliver us from the pain and brokenness in this world. Because Jesus has come. It's here. Will you step out of that cell, be freed from captivity, and walk in that? Amen? So God, we thank you. We thank you that you're a different kind of king. Father, we pray that you'd give us the boldness, the courage, the fortitude to walk away from the all-too-familiar captivity that we may be in in different areas of our lives and to step out of that and into what you have for us. God, we thank you that even in the natural rhythms of a calendar year, this is a season of reflection. Would you help us to reflect on what you've done and what you have before us through the lens of following a new kind of king, being a new kind of citizen in a new kind of kingdom. And we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for that work that Jesus did so that we can live in that way. And as a community, would we edify and encourage one another into that space? So we thank you for this time, and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. As we close, would you stand and worship?